This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I'm so All right, everybody, definitely you can see the excitement among GE investors. Go figure, they come out with earnings and the stock is rallying. We just had a headline crossing to about maybe uh, selling off one of their big units. Let's talk all things GE. Karen Ubelhart is industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's been going strong since this morning. Also nonstop today, our own Rick Clough, industrials reporter at Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio with myself and Barry Ritholtz. So, Karen, actually, Rick, let me just start with you, because we just got a headline on GE. They might sell off a big unit. Yeah, so they are looking to sell actually about $20 billion of assets, and one of the big ones in there is uh, GE Transportation, which is uh, the business that makes locomotives. And uh, it's something that we knew was in progress, but we hadn't really gotten too many updates on it. And so uh, as Bloomberg just reported uh, within the last hour, um, they are in talks with Wabtec. Um, it's a company that makes uh, locomotives and other products for the rail industry, and uh, it in talks to possibly do some sort of a deal, a, a sale or a merger. Now, it, it's far from done, and, and GE could still go some other route, maybe an IPO or something, but uh, but it does look like they're finally getting close to a deal there. And this is worth about $6.8 billion? Yeah, and the the estimates vary. Um, uh, I've yeah. seen uh, estimates just in the last Karen uh, couple of days. Karen just said, higher, higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a straight sale, yeah, yeah, it could be at least that much. Karen, does this go a long way to what? Ales, GE? I think it's a great step because, um, you know, people were like, let's show us the money, like do something. And they've they've just announced small asset sales, things like that. So this is the biggest thing they had to sell, except Baker Hughes, which they say they're not going to sell their share of that, but I hope they do. Um, and so this is a big deal. It gives them a lot of cash. The, hopefully they'll put a bunch of it into the pension and get some of that, the, that concern away. But, uh, and, you know, it's a, Webtech's a good fit. They have $125 billion in debt. Is that right? Yes, but that's with the finance sub. Most okay. of that is with the finance okay. sub. Okay. So, so what is their actual debt? Hold GE capital aside, because I assume that that is uh, managed debt outside of that division. They don't really seem to have a whole lot of debt. They have The, the leverage is a little high. You mm -hmm. know, um, it's, it's uh, our... I think it's a, a little over four times, mm -hmm. and you know, so it, it's a little bit uh, it, that should come down. But they'll use they already well, it might be lower than that now because they sold they actually retired some debt this quarter. They told so, us so. So you're this little back and forth is explaining exactly what investors' problems are with General Electric. What are they? What's their focus? Where do their profits come from? Where are their growth coming from? They're just this sprawling conglomerate. Can we really say exactly what the key focus is or should be? And which I think we you used can. to like yeah. as investors. We love that they touched all these different things, yeah. but we don't like it no. anymore. It's no. out of favor now. I mean, right. the truth is because some so many of the other businesses have had problems, the, the, the businesses, they, they make 80% of their earnings out of aerospace, healthcare, and... Well, power, although it's a shrinking piece. Um, so the, all those other businesses really don't matter at the end of the day to the story. So, mm -hmm. so what does matter, Rick? 
Well, I, I think it's it's those businesses and um, and and also it's um, sort of simplifying the company, getting back to basics, and 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 actually showing that uh, they've got cash flow, they can run the the company, and um, and and so I think for investors, they really just want to um, understand what GE is. It's a really big, complex, difficult company to understand, and I think as they do start to get rid of some of these businesses, it 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 really will get easier, and in that way, then you might see that some of these businesses are are valued at, at uh, a, a more a, a higher and more appropriate level so rick what do you think they're going to be sloughing off over the next couple of of years six billion dollars is is not pocket change but out of a 130 billion dollar market cap company it's not a big game changer how much more can they sell off to become a little leaner and a little meaner yeah you know and and it, to your point actually um ge transportation it's uh you know even if they did get seven billion dollars this is a, a, a about three four percent of the company's annual revenue this is not a big piece of ge right. uh and so what they're doing right now actually is is a more thorough portfolio review and um they're gonna announce the results and and their plan going forward probably in the next month or two um and that could include a uh, a breakup and and if they do that then then ge as we know it w- would be gone would, would that be a bad thing or would that be a good that sounds like it could unlock value for shareholders well, that's the big debate right now, and and it if you ask one investor, they say yeah, that's the way to do it, and the next one might say and eh, not so much. Um, and so you've got yeah. a lot of uh, analysts coming out now with some of the parts calculations, and and some say there could be a lot of value unlocked, and others say actually it's this is about right. Karen, what do you think the playbook should be for GE? Uh, well, I do think they have to. Uh, I, I think they have to uh, sell some, some meaningful assets. Number one, number two. I don't know why. I mean, power is a good business if they could size it right. But aerospace is a great business, and and healthcare is a great business. So I actually think there is value in in two of the three businesses they want to keep. I also think they should sell their share in Baker Hughes. They get, uh, you know, uh, it's two. They own two thirds of it. They can sell it early at a discount. They'd have to get a, a, a approval from Baker Hughes to do that. Right. But it'd give them cash again. And, and that's what's that what people worth? are concerned about right now. What do you think that would um, go for? Their their piece um, is about, in my sum of the parts, their piece is about uh, uh, 19, no, 9 billion, I think. I'm All right. Sorry. Again, not an insubstantial but, chunk yeah, of change. Yeah. And, and they don't need it. They, what they're waiting for is the recovery. Okay. They don't want to sell an oil and gas business when the, you know, the upturn in oil prices is just starting. Right, exactly. So. And they might be right about that. I, I think they are right yeah. fundamentally, but they have other problems. So We're going to keep talking about GE, no <laughs> doubt about it. Um, guys, thank you so much. Thank you. I know it's been a busy day. Karen Eubelhart, thank you so much of Bloomberg Intelligence. Rick Clough, thank you as well of Bloomberg News. Getting to know you. Getting to know <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Yeah, they're getting to know all about you. We're talking about Palantir. It is the data collecting and connecting company that truly does have so much data about so many different people. It also happens to be the cover of Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's a company co-founded by well-known tech investor Peter Thiel. Peter Waldman is projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Peter, I could talk for hours about this story. You and I talked earlier in the week. We've only got about six minutes here, but tell us about Palantir who they are and what they are up to. Sure, Carol. As you mentioned, it was founded by Peter Thiel in 2004 and some other people. Uh, It basically was a response to um, the situation with international terrorism. 
Uh, Teal's idea was that the government needed uh, tools to track terrorists down, to f combat terrorism without turning the nation into a police state. And Palantir was the answer. It's a software tool that accesses all kinds of databases, including deep web information, and and um, compiles it all together, synthesizes, analyzes, and you end up with a kind of spider web of connections and links that human uh, intelligence analysts couldn't find. So here's the scary thing, and you allude to this in the story. They have a lot of government contracts. But they need growth, and they're looking for business, and uh, they know everything about everyone. This could be far more intrusive than what we've seen with Facebook. Well, it, it is true. It's possible because it could encompass Facebook and everything else. Remember, it is a tool, so it really depends who's using it, who they're working for. I think the operative statement you made was that they need business, so they could find all kinds of people who want more information about all of us. It's a data mining company that literally um, is, is brilliant, uh, particularly with all the forward deployed engineers, the consultants they send into companies uh, and integrate all this material together. Perhaps the scariest part of it is the law enforcement angle, the kind of civil liberties and privacy concerns about the state knowing so much about us because they're so successful with law enforcement from the local sheriff to police departments uh, all the way up to the Department of Homeland Security and tracking immigrants and people who travel on airplanes. And Peter, it's led to, you know, you talk about police um, forces working with Palantir and it's led to people being arrested and charged falsely, incorrectly for crimes just because Palantir makes the connection. Well, uh, we don't have direct evidence of people being charged criminally with crimes for a false connection. We do know, um, for example, that uh, DHS rounds up people they suspect of being part of gangs who are immigrants in this country right. and rounds them up for deportation. And a lot of times the information about that gang database, the listing is incorrect. It's unclear because uh, everybody, all the agencies and and agents and police and so forth involved have been careful to leave Palantir out of court papers. So it hasn't been challenged. We don't know exactly how and where it's being used in specific mm. cases. For example, these immigrants who've been uh, accused of being gang members, they don't know Palantir was the link. Uh, although the agencies that um, were in their jurisdictions, in the case of Chicago, for example, uh, clearly have access to Palantir, and Palantir does compile gang databases uh, for DHS and so forth. So we can suspect Palantir was the link. But it is yeah. true that when you rely on data, you don't know <laughs> how verified it is, particularly with no warrant and none of the scrutiny required of, of a warrant in that kind of situation. And forgive me for the mischaracterization, because you do have a, just some great stories and anecdotes about people what happened. Just quickly, if you can, what happened at J.P. Morgan? We've just got about a minute or so left, minute 10 left. Sure. Well, they hired a former Secret Service guy uh, who ran the forensic and internal threat uh, desk, which basically looks at employees and, and uh, for concerns about abuse of corporate assets, things like the London whale and the trading losses there. And this person sort of ran amok with Palantir, kind of <laughs> surrounded by Palantir engineers, 
was able to look into people's printer activity from their computers, uh, GPS tracking, uh, even conversations that get uh, used over the phone systems and get digitally recorded and so forth. They can search those. So Palantir was used essentially to run a spy operation against J.P. Morgan's own employees. Wow. So my concern isn't so much them actually doing their job, but like we've seen with the Equifax hack, what happens if Palantir's database is accessed by um, undesirable outside elements. Peter, just got about 25 seconds. Well, that would be no good, and I'm <laughs> sure it's something that they're mindful of. Uh, we'll just have to see, you know. Hacks seem to happen to anyone and everyone. We'll just wait and find out about that. Unbelievable story. Great story. And I feel like if you really want to kind of have an understanding of what's going on in this world uh, with the use of data. And Barry, as you said, this is something I think more terrifying yeah. <laughs> than the Facebook stuff. For sure. Peter, Facebook is just superficial stuff you share. This is stuff that they're scraping from everywhere. That's right, and making the connections. Peter Waldman, you are terrific. Projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Check out Bloomberg Business Week this weekend on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. Our next guest is Sun Jen Young. She works with Influence Partners, helping audio streaming giant Spotify find new companies to partner with and acquire. So, so tell us, Sun, what have you been doing with Spotify? So uh, thank you, Barry. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be the investment banker representing Louder, uh, the company that they just uh, recently acquired. Uh, which is in the music rights, uh, royalty, and publishing space. So it's so basically. Oh, go ahead, please. For, forgive me. Go ahead. No, not at all. Uh, so basically, what Louder does is they have technology people and processes that really uh, help simplify and make more efficient the whole process of figuring out uh, what uh, royalties to pay in the publishing area, which has to do with. Um, publishing rights for music. So it's basically the composition. This so that can be lyrics, um, you know, the, the, the actual uh, words in a song, things like that. This is a big deal, right? Because this is a big part of it. Anytime you want to, you know, play some kind of music, there's rights involved, there's costs involved. So, you know, how does this kind of help simplify the process, essentially, for someone like Spotify? How does it help them ultimately make money? Because Son, you know this space. It's a tough one. I don't have to tell you about, you know, the companies that have come out and either close shop or continue to not make money doing this. So give me an idea of how this might help um, Spotify sure. make money. You're right. It, it is a very complicated area, and it's complicated because uh, the underlying uh, data behind the publishing rights trades hands. Um, it's hard to keep track of. And uh, with the advent of music basically going to streaming versus, you know, downloads that we would all buy, um, the rights picture is much more complicated. So there's about tw there were like 12 rights events that were triggered that are triggered by each piece of music that's streamed versus let's say six when there were digital downloads. So not only you know the the great news is that the music industry has been growing now thanks to streaming. But the number of uh, rights events, uh, as well as the volume of streams, has been growing. So what these guys do is they've taken their technology and uh, gathered a lot of data and used their people 
to simplify that process of trying to be able to match the rights that are triggered when a piece of music is streamed. So let's let, let's talk a little bit about the broader business model of Spotify. They now have what 70, 75 million subscribers. What sort of work do you do as a banker helping to find companies that can fill out their portfolio or fill out what they need to keep growing and expanding and perhaps one day becoming profitable? Yeah, I, I represent companies that are uh, looking for strategic buyers in the music space, not just Spotify, but I've also been fortunate enough to sell companies in this music rights space to YouTube uh, slash Google, uh, Facebook, and some of the uh, performing rights organizations, the music rights organizations like SOCAN and um, CSAC. And so uh, what, one of the trends that, that I've seen that is going to continue is a consolidation in the space where uh, music publishing rights and just rights for music in general is, is an issue because uh, the, the rights owners want to get paid. And so when there are companies that have technology, data, and processes that can help automate that process and do a better job of matching um, the, the rights events that are triggered to the actual payment so that the intellectual property owners get paid, that's a good thing for the industry. Hey, what does, hey, what does this sound mean for the labels and so on and so forth? Are, is, does this essentially help cut them out? No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't cut them out. You know, the labels uh, tend to deal more with like the music, rec- the the actual the the recording side. So uh, mm. having uh, a lot of the artists get paid. This is more like um, I, I sort of like the analogy of film and TV, where this is the really important part that uh, has to do with the producer, the writer, the cinematographer, uh, people like that that are involved in the process versus the actor and actor, uh, actress. Huh, that that's kind of interesting. And, and, so your and, your and focus is is primarily on the right side. Is that where the companies you tend to work with, or do you? That's where that's where I've done most of my work. Um, and so, what you've seen is as a lot of these uh, digital companies, like I said, YouTube, uh, Facebook, and and Spotify have gotten bigger. It's made sense for them to look for talent and technology that can help them augment their own internal processes and capabilities in this area, so build inter- better systems. And I'm thinking about our audience who are listening, because we do spend, you know, we obviously talked a lot about the Spotify the IPO and, and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of the big trends that you're seeing, if it sounds like the big one is consolidation, that we're going to have to see this among these bigger players for it to make sense financially uh, going forward. Yeah, I, th- I think when, when these platforms get to be of very large scale, like you mentioned Spotify is, um, it's natural to want to try to control more of the technology and processes that can overall um, help uh, them better manage their costs, therefore returning more profit to shareholders. What about in terms of Apple and Amazon and some of the other big, big players who don't mind losing money for a while, um, they're going to continue to dominate, or how do you see their role? Just got about 35 seconds here. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's it's a multi-horse race. Although I do think that um, you know YouTube's the largest streaming music platform. Mm. Um, Spotify has the most paid users. Apple is trying to catch up, uh, as is as is Amazon in the music space. Uh, Amazon has come on strong in the last year with Alexa. That's really helped their growth in terms of music subscribers. Um, so, uh, you, you know, yeah. you've got a less than a handful of players, but it's been harder for some of the smaller guys like Pandora, yeah. for example. 
Absolutely. It's not been easy at all. Um, cool space. Great to get some time with you. Uh, Sunjan Young, partner and head of digital media at Influence Partners, joining us on the phone from New York. isn't always better. And technology and economics, well, they're unraveling industries as we've known them for decades. Here with more on how the global business environment is decomposing, that's his word, into smaller yet more profitable markets. It's the subject of a new book, Unscaled, How AI and a New Generation of Upstarts Are Creating the Economy of the Future. Ament Tanaja is Managing Director at General Catalyst. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Nice to have you here with uh, Barry Ritholtz and myself. Hey, uh, tell us a little bit about this book and what the premise is. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, this book, uh, we wrote this book because I'm convinced that scale has run its course. If you think about the last century, a key measure in progress was scaling. We scaled our healthcare system, we scaled our banks our education system, everything. And if you look today, you would say uh, we are actually seeing a lot, all of them pretty much break down. Healthcare system is taking our economy to near bankruptcy. Banks failed in 2008. Uh, Every one of these sectors is having issues. And meanwhile, we have organized content, community, and commerce online, and a new generation of startups that use data and AI and effectively rent scale are rewriting all these industries for us. And this book is an explanation of how we're in the midst of a secular shift uh, around the economy as a whole. So I love the concept of the descaling of of what or unscaling of what was formerly these giant behemoths. But don't you run into the issue of these small, nimble startups? They still have to achieve economies of scale, to use your word, and they still have to achieve certain level of mass acceptance to become, forget big, just even medium profitable-sized companies. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great uh, question. The core idea is when a f- founding team starts a company today, they almost don't have to think about what um, the size of the market is because you can actually sustainably service even very small niches of uh, markets, which you couldn't before. You just It just wasn't uh, economical. And the reason you can do it is you can actually rent computing from Amazon and manufacturing from a company like Flextronics and distribution from FedEx. You don't have to build these capabilities yourself. Now, does your idea have a natural ceiling where it's going to go be relevant for the entire um, uh, economy or even be available worldwide, or is it a small idea? Almost doesn't matter. The point is you can actually build uh, it at any market size. So you don't need to build a whole server farm, a giant database. The The days of the 90s where it just took 10 or $15 million to launch anything, they're long over. Two founders, a laptop, and an internet connection. Is that all we need? Pretty much. Uh, and here's what, what's amazing is uh, when you think about what these founding teams are doing today compared to 15 years ago when I got in the business, back then it was, hey, let's write some software and make physicians more productive. Or let's write some software and make teachers or accountants or uh, supply chain managers more productive. And that's what was created. Today, the same founders are coming and saying, hey, how about we just redefine what 
caring for 30 million diabetics in this country is going to look like? Or how about we, we, re, we change how we actually teach in a classroom? And those are pretty profound right. uh, uh, ideas that get built today. There are some industries I'm just waiting for them to kind of be disrupted. An overused word, I know. But anyway, I'm going to throw it out there. You've got five degrees from MIT, so you appreciate a great educational institution. How does all of this, though, disrupt Upstart, you know, how do upstarts really change education? I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Khan Academy. You know it well. You're a board member of it. So, what happens to something like education? It's one of my favorite topics. You know, when you think about what education used to be, it was this master apprentice model. You would pick a vocation you loved, and you would apprentice under an expert and get great at it. And then, somewhere in the last 150 years, we started. Uh, evolving to a system where you have 30 kids that learn mathematics at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they're all <laughs> the same age, and it's one teacher teaching them at the same pace. And and uh, it has take, taken us so far away from what uh, the whole uh, uh, path to learning used to be. What needs to happen is uh, uh, services like Khan Academy um, enabling you to be able to learn at your own pace and, and change the role of the classroom itself. So uh, under uh, the Khan Academy's guidance, we have this new school we built called Khan Lab School where my kids go. And uh, a lot of uh, the core philosophy is about letting these kids self-organize and learn at their own pace. And so my daughter, when she decides when she wants to learn right. uh, math during the day. And she opens up the AI-based master, and it helps teach it at, at her own pace in right. the way she likes to learn. Very indiv individualized. I, we could talk hours with you. We only have 20 seconds left. But is it okay for Amazon to be a huge company in this new environment that you talk about? Just got about 15 seconds. I think it's an enormous issue in how these companies that are the platforms that enable startups to rent scale view right. their role to be. They can't be competing with the companies that are being built on top of them. Pretty cool stuff. Hopefully you can come back again because I think this is a pretty cool topic. Uh, Hemant Tanaja, uh, Managing Director, General Catalyst, well-known VC firm. Uh, his book, of course, is called Unscaled, How AI and a New Generation of Upstarts Are Creating the Economy of the Future from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Bloomberg Markets, Carol Master, Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. We are here driving to the close, and in studio, I have Masa Takeda with me and Carol. He is the portfolio manager of the Hennessy Japan Fund, which manages about $7 billion in our 1130 studio in New York. Masa, let's talk a little bit about what it's like investing in Japan uh, the returns have been pretty good for the past couple of years, but things look like Japan is now changing their, um, possibly changing their political situation. What's going to happen with the economy over there, and what's going to happen with their market? Well, um, the last five years, um, thanks to economics, the stock price went up by about 120%, and corporate earnings went up by almost the same amount. 
Going forward, I think the structural reforms should uh, keep driving that momentum. And uh, there are a lot of uh, reforms uh, that have been, have been hammered out. Uh, some, of, some of them will be very successful. Some of them may fail. But in aggregate, I think it's good enough to move the needle for Japan. What about, you know, it's interesting, I was just pulling up a Bloomberg uh, market story from earlier this month. It just talked about at that point how Goldman was cutting their Japan equity forecasts. And it also just noted how much money was coming out of Japanese stocks. Uh, foreign investors cutting about 8.2 trillion yen. That was in the first three months of Japan. Um, you think they're making a mistake? Well, I mean... You've uh, got to invest in Japan, right? Yeah, of course, <laughs> I have to make case for Japan. And um, I mean, we are... Uh, different from average investors in the sense that we are long term and we look at the corporate fundamentals. We're pure bottom up stock because we're there in the for, we're there for the long term. So um, beyond the macro story, you're looking for those good cor corporate stories. Exactly. So good macro or not, I mean, good companies are always there, and there's always uh, uh, you know many opportunities to make money from it. Well, who do you like? Let me you know take a look at some of your big holdings. Uh, is it Mitsubishi that's your number one holding? Yes. Uh, well, Mitsubishi is a trading company. It's very, very global. And uh, I view it as more of an investment holding company. And if you look at their growth trend in uh, net, as net per share net asset value, uh, they've been averaging about um, high single digits to 10% over the last 15 years. And I think uh, that trend will continue. Uh, meanwhile, valuations are very, very attractive. High single digit multiple and mm -hmm. price to book list at one time. So we've been hearing about the perennial problems in Japan now for years. They still haven't recovered from their Great Recession uh, and the peak in 1989. They have demographic issues. The, the GDP to debt ratio is almost 200%. And yet the business in Japan seems to keep chugging along. Do you just shrug off these macro concerns? Are they not significant to a, company, to a country that exports so many hard goods? Well, the structural issues, um, and I worry about that a lot, but without growth, we can't address those issues. So uh, first and foremost, we have to put the country back on the growth track. And that, that's why the re structural reforms are far more important than the monetary easing that we've seen in the past. There's mm -hmm. enough liquidity in the system, but it's not just circulating yet. So, um, you know, just, um, you know, I would encourage investors to keep an eye on the progress of those initiatives and the reforms. What, what do you think is the single most important reform that uh, the Japanese government has to put into play? You know, it's, it's hard to say. Um, it's really the collective effort. So, you know, we have reforms ranging from tax reforms, corporate governance reforms, job market reforms. More recently, the government focus has been around job market reforms. But you have such an aging, I mean, you know, the story, the demographic story doesn't go away, does it? Yeah, that's right. So we are doing a lot of... Uh, uh, making a lot of efforts like bringing back uh, old uh, retired senior workers back into the workforce and yeah. also uh, retired um, uh, uh, female um, uh, professionals uh, who are now stay-at-home mothers. We try to bring those uh, people back into the workforce as it, well. And is it making a difference? Uh, it should, and I think uh, it is making a difference. What, what about immigration? It's been such a monolithic society for so long, and there are lots of surrounding countries that would love to send some workers to Japan. Is that ever going to change? Um, unfortunately, there is no talk uh, at the moment, and uh, it's because Japan is such a homogeneous country. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, so that that's something that remains to be seen. Um, the, we, uh, as an investor, um, you know, we invest in global companies that can also capture the growth of Japan if there is going to be. And at the same time, uh, we will all, we're also going to benefit from the global economy. All right. So we're talking a lot of macro issues, and um, they're interesting to talk about. But nonetheless, you've got to put money to work. And you mentioned one of the names. Um, you like Japan Tobacco. T- tell me some other ones that you maybe have been adding to your positions. Sure. Um, I, I know you're long-term, but I'm yeah. just curious Let, if you've we're been... We're going to front-run you, so just be aware of that. Whatever, <laughs> you, whatever you buy, we're going to be ahead of you. <laughs> we're going to be... Uh, we, joke, we've been, joke, uh, <laughs> joke, everybody. <laughs> investing in uh, uh, SoftBank, and I know um, it's a bit of a controversial name over here in the U.S. and yeah. as well as in Japan, but I think uh, Sonsan, uh, the founder, president, CEO, he's the... He's probably the greatest entrepreneur that Japan has ever seen, and um, he's going to do a lot of. In- he's doing a lot of interesting things. And, and meanwhile, valuation remains uh, extremely attractive, uh, based on some of the parts. If you look at Alibaba stake and de- domestic telecom assets, uh, just to combine, 160 billion dollars in intrinsic value, and uh, market cap seems to be very, very cheap. And that's a five percent position for you already. That's correct. Interesting. Good stuff. Um, I think we have to run. Sorry. Will you come back in a year? That's kind of our routine with you, huh? (laughs) Thank you, as always, for having me. No, we like doing it, and we like getting another look uh, at another part of the world. Um, Masa Takeda, Portfolio Manager at the Hennessy Japan Fund. $7 billion in assets under management, as I mentioned. um, An outperformer, pretty much beating all of its peers, that fund, over the past five years. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 